0: We've been, for most of the summer, we've been uh, reading through Ephesians. And, and one of the great opportunities uh, of the summertime is is in some ways to slow down, but in, in a lot of other ways, everyone's kind of here and there and everywhere. And so we, we've we kind of challenged uh, each other to, to try to sit in one place, in one sitting, read through Ephesians once a week for this summer. Um, and I know, like, that sort of resolution gets knocked out of whack pretty early. That might have happened for the first week or two. Now is a good time to start again. Like It's not like the type of thing. It's not like working out where it's like, oh, well, ah, I'm just going to be at the beach and I'm going to look like that. That happened. No, you can start doing this like tomorrow. You can do this. Just get a comfortable chair, sit down, 45 minutes, read through Ephesians, and and just kind of soak in this gracious picture of of what God um, has done and what God is calling us to as as one body, and then uh, starting with kind of today's passage in chapter 4, this hinge towards our calling and what we're doing in light of that. Um, So uh, I'm going to invite Holly to come up and read our passage from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16.
1: short okay Ephesians 4 1 through 16 as a prisoner of the Lord then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord one faith one baptism One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe.
0: This chapter starts on a hinge. Um, it, it, I asked in an email earlier this week, what is the most important word in the Bible and, and some good candidates are faith or hope or love. Um, but I think we need to consider therefore. Um, because therefore always serves as a hinge of, of what God has done and then what we're to do. Um, so... It doesn't really show up well in that translation, but there's a, there's a big fat therefore at the beginning of chapter four, because up until now we've been hearing about how God has been making peace between uh, Israel and really everyone else but Israel, calling them to be gathered into God's people in Christ. And now, what are we supposed to do? Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And this, this worthy word, this, this term, is, it's, a, it's a weight, it's a scale word, right? Like it's a balance. I remember when I was a little kid and we'd go to the feed store and they'd pour the feed in and there would be this balance until you know they'd set the counterbalance and then it would come up It would tell you how much that feed was worth, how worthy it was, what the price was. And so, too, Paul is calling us to live lives worthy in the balance of what God has done by making peace through his grace. And And I think if God's calling, what God has done is only through grace, why should our walking in that be any different? If we're to be worthy, it's not because we've tried harder or like girded our loins up uh, to do better, but it's because we've surrendered. It's because we've submitted. It's because we stopped dragging our feet on the bottom and just got swept up in God's currents of grace. This is why our, our worthiness doesn't produce pride or excellence or achievement or motion just for motion's sake so we can say that we did something or so we look busy but Paul says it produces humility gentleness patience the ability to bear with one another and that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to be peaceful to be unified and this is our this is our calling and calling is uh, is, a, is, is not just a job, but it's a, it's a vocation. It's a way of life. It's our calling to reflect what God has done. Maybe, maybe more accurately, to refract it, right? Because a, a reflection is, is like standing in a mirror, and it's just a simple one-to-one uh, correlation. But a, a refraction creates more and more. A refraction is is white light going into a prism and out comes a rainbow. As one, we refract as many. The unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. We don't need to be afraid of this because of what God has done. And so that mystery that that we worked through a few weeks ago, that open secret of what God's doing and adding people to the number of, of his people, this works itself out in one body where Christ has made peace. This is, this is how we express our monotheism, not through monoculture, right, but, but through diversity, through difference, through gifts and giftings, calls and callings that are all a little different. If you look around in this room, there's a lot of different callings, a lot of different giftings. And it doesn't mean when we 're together and we 're unified that we have that kind of individual individuality snuffed out. I think it, it, it we're able to be unified in that because it means we all have the same dad doling out gifts, asking us to use them well for the sake of each other. This is like I always remember my my grandpa at at Christmas time we had a huge family and, and he always had his Santa hat and a scowl on his face, but he was He was giving everyone presents from my 60-year-old aunt to our one-year-old, and they were all different gifts, but they were coming from the same Grinch. (laughs) (laughs) Ephesians tells us, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, one, 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 one. It happens seven times, and seven's not an insignificant number in the Bible. It's completeness, it's shalom, it's rest, it's God, it's control. Stephen Guthrie um, is a theologian. He he writes about this. How, how there can be unity and diversity and, God, and how God is one, but we have many. He, he writes, that this is the very thing that distinguishes new humanity, the diversity of its members. That the different members are heirs together and sharers of the promise. The community of believers is not a threat to individuality, but the place where one discovers it. Imagine that. So many people are so afraid to show up at church because they're afraid that they're going to lose their individuality. And this is saying you might actually find your true self. It is a member of one body that each one lives out her own distinctive gift and calling. And conversely, the individuality of members is not a threat to community, to our unity. The unity of the whole arises from the differentiated activity of its members, each contributing something distinctive but necessary for the life of the whole body. And then in Paul's letter, he has this weird ascension aside in here. And like when I got this passage, I right away tried to see if I could like cut it up into smaller chunks because it's just so much stuff but you really can't, or else I would have. But he does this ascension aside, and, and, and if we remember a couple months ago when we celebrated Jesus' ascension into heaven, remember that it marks the reality that, mysteriously, Jesus being absent from us makes him present to us in a more real way. Joey spoke really beautifully last week about how Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, praying constantly for us. Imagine that. Like when you ask someone, will you pray for me? Or someone kind of like glibly just says like, oh, I'm praying for you. And that probably doesn't happen. You have Jesus in heaven praying for you right now. He's got his dad's ear on our behalf. And the ascension also means that even now Jesus, our Lord, is claiming this world and calling the battle with sin and death, death over, even as most of the time it looks otherwise. We kind of live in that lag. But while we live in that lag, we bear witness, and we are witnesses to Christ's power and unity and grace and peace by being his body. Mysteriously, we're united in Christ, insider and outsider young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, educated or not educated, the many drawing life and love from the one. So this letter to the Ephesians then does this weird thing, and it repackages part of one of David's battle psalms, Psalm 68. It's originally, you know, David's writing about how a warrior might overthrow a land And then, quote-unquote, receive gifts. I think that's kind of a a euphemism for taking what he's conquered. But instead of conquest, it kind of gets remixed um, in our passage. In In Ephesians 4 says, When you ascended on high, you took many captives. Well, this is what 68 says. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. But in Ephesians, it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Paul slants an important part. Sure, David was a shadow of the sort of king after God's own heart that we'd come to see in Jesus. But Jesus' conquering was quite different. The resurrected ascended Jesus who's poised to come again to set this world aright, doesn't grab gifts from his people, but rather lavishes gifts on his people. In the cross, and then by God raising Jesus from the dead, that love whose height and depth and breadth and length that surpasses our ability to even understand, it fills everything and filters to us and through us. The message, paraphrase, puts it this way. Is it not true that the one who climbed up also climbed down, down to the valley of earth? And the one who climbed down is the one who climbed back up to the highest heaven. He handed out gifts above and below. Filled heaven with his gifts. Filled earth with his gifts. And the amazing thing is that Jesus thought the church was special enough to give us particular gifts. Individual gifts, not just individually, but collectively, so we can grow into His image together. Paul lists these five offices next. Sometimes they're known under an acronym: APEST, uh, apostle, prophet, evangelist, uh, shepherd, and teacher. I like to think of these these terms as kind of like kind of like a base. Like in baseball, they talk about a really well-rounded player is a five-tool player, right? Like, you don't really come across this player very much who's can hit for average, he can bat for power, he possesses uh, speed and smarts in the base paths, he's got a rocket for an arm, oh yeah, and he also has a golden glove. Like, to come across someone that has all those is like generational. Like, there's not a lot of like Bo Jackson's or Willie Mays is running around. Like, the, that player doesn't happen. And, and so it would be really depressing if that was the rubric for what made a baseball player. Like, you had to be all of those things. Like, kids would opt out right after T-ball. You know, like, you know, I would have opted out really early because of the speed part. But for, for all, the, all the people, there, there's, it's almost like once in a generation that you see one with all of them. But man, if you put a roster together with a bunch of those pieces, a bunch of those gifts, a guy that can hit a home run when you need it, a guy who can steal a base when you need it, solid fielding, and of course good pitching isn't included. In it, you can really win some games. When gifts complement each other, and, and the cool thing about gifts is they, they often pull the best out of someone else. There's a certain kind of grace that exists and all of those tools make for a really great team, a really successful team. So as Jesus gives gifts, I praise the Lord that he didn't give everything to everyone. Like that's frustrating sometimes when it feels like you should have all the gifts. Or you look at someone and it seems like they have so many more gifts than you. But if he gave all the gifts to everyone, we wouldn't need each other. We'd be ships passing in the night or or maybe even worse, we'd be like corporations competing with each other. Instead, he gave gifts as free as as his grace. Gifts for each other. For the building up of his body, for the continual inclusion of those outside his body who have yet to taste and see how good the Lord is. And then we We hone these gifts and we spend these gifts together. Perhaps we'd even be surprised at what we see in ourselves and in others. That's the most exciting thing about these gifts is when someone comes up to you and says, I really see this in you and you never saw it in yourself. Nothing nothing is better to, to have someone recognize how God is working into your life. So I want to briefly go through some of these gifts in the church. And I want to do a few things. I want to briefly describe what the gift is and entails. Because so often we think we know, but we have some kind of stale understanding about what that gift might look like. We have like this archetype in our head that's just so wrong. Um, And and so we miss the people around us or even in ourselves. I also want to look at the best expression of that gift. And I always believe that our, our model... And our definitions need to come from the one who it came from, the five-tool-player Christ uh, in whom all these gifts come from and then point back towards. I also want to nominate some examples that I've seen in my recent life that fit some of these descriptions. And I pray that you look around and, and examine others and examine yourself to see people who might have been given these gifts, even if they don't know it and give them that encouragement. Give them, uh, offer them a chance to develop those gifts. So my, the first one is Apostle. Jesus, the Apostle. And the Apostle um, it, it has snuck in there kind of that that root for like postman, like one sent. Op- uh, to be apostolic means to be not only a sent one, but a sending one. There's kind of almost like an entrepreneurial um, slant to this. Uh, and, and so we, we see in, in things like John 20, um, when Mary encounters the risen Christ, and Mary's, you know, Mary of Magdalene, of all people, is known as the apostle to the apostles, because she was sent. She, in John 20, she encounters the risen Christ, and she says, Lord, they have, or she says, they have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. Jesus said, to her, Mary, and she turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, put a pin in that, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have yet I have not yet ascended to the Father and said to my brother, and said, Go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father, my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And then a little later the resurrected Christ shows up to the apostles and he says, Peace be to you, as the Father has sent me so I send you. And so when I was looking for artwork to kind of depict this, I chose the Jordan baptism where you have the Father sending Christ, the Holy Spirit descending on Christ, and Jesus is sent and sending. And you get this also in the Great Commission in Matthew where he sends them to go, to go the world over make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Apostles are sent ones, and they're sending ones. And so when I was trying to nominate someone for this, I uh, I got stuck on a friend of mine who probably doesn't see himself necessarily as apostolic, my friend Jason. So you have Jesus the Apostle and Jason the Apostle. So Jason... Works in, in finance. He works for like a, a values investing company. And he can work from anywhere. Uh, Jason was in Louisville, Kentucky. And recently, Jason has moved to San Francisco to help plant a church. That's a terrible idea to move from Louisville to San Francisco if your income does not change. But Jason wanted to be part of this church. He was sent to be a part of this church. He sent to move beyond his... Con- comfort and his advantage to, to a sacrificial and unknown future. And I think like Mary and like the other apostles he's sent to proclaim the resurrected Christ, even while the details were a little fuzzy, like, isn't that so great about Mary? Like she, she doesn't really even know the message completely that she's supposed to be going with, but she's just supposed to go and she's supposed to tell, go tell it on the mountain, Right. So Jason has gone, and and this is based solely on his relationship with the God who goes. This is the God that went, um, and we're reminded around Advent time, and, and the Word um, went out from the Father and became flesh. It Peterson's paraphrase says, "Moved into the neighborhood and put on flesh and blood," and and I think that church plan. But I also think this church plan is kind of inherently apostolic. Like that's just kind of uh, Where especially our, the core team are, are sent ones. Like even if that's not your primary, overarching gift, like that's something in you to want to to want to stick with this and see this through and build and grow and call others and send others. Jesus the apostle and Jason the apostle. Next is prophet. And and when I was looking for art for this, uh, I, I found this. Um, piece by Eric Gill of Jesus casting the money changers out of his father's temple. Because a prophet is one who calls others back to faithfulness. A prophet is someone who hears God and then interrupts what he sees going on around them that doesn't line up with that vision of God's shalom. A prophet destabilizes the sinful norm. And I remember when when I first went to seminary, there was like a really, there's like an issued warning to students. Because everyone, every first year divinity student or seminary student wants to be prophetic. And that's their thing. Like, not in like, a, I'm going to predict the day and time of the return, but I want to like stick it to the man with my preaching. And, and I remember our Old Testament professor issued the warning and be like, that's fine, but remember, most people don't listen to prophets. If we we look at Isaiah, if you want to be a prophetic preacher, be prepared to not have people really want to lean into you. Also, be prepared to suffer. Because if we remember, prophets suffer. We think about Jeremiah. We think about Hosea, who embodies his message to the point where Israel's sinfulness is depicted as his own wife, Uh, his own wife's unfaithfulness to him. Or we think about how embodied their message becomes that the prophet Ezekiel is so intent on getting God's word in him that he eats a scroll. You know, like the prophet is not necessarily a glorious enterprise. And so for Jesus' life, we we can look in, in Matthew 21 when Jesus enters Jerusalem, what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, And they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But then a couple of verses later, we see this this temple scene. Jesus entered the temple in the words of, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the psalmist. on his lips he enters the temple courts and drove out all those buying and selling there he overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves it is written he said to them my house will be called a house of prayer but you are making a den of robbers the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you hear what these children are saying, he said? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth your praise? And he let them, and he went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. A prophet interrupts the discourse by physically casting down idols. And so my my nomination for a prophet now is is, uh, someone named Bree Newsom, who about a month ago climbed up to the top of a flagpole at the South Carolina State House and cast down that idol while reciting Psalm 23 so that everyone could hear before she got arrested. She she resists the principalities and, and powers that oppose God's shalom, and, and calls God's people, even, who have been enchanted by these false narratives and calls them back to faithfulness. Bree, the prophet. Next is the evangelist. And it's been said that the medium is the message, so it was really hard to kind of understand how Jesus, being the good news, could be the proclaimer of good news, too. And, and so I found this, this um, Rembrandt sketch of Jesus talking with Nicodemus at night, uh, opening his eyes to the good news, walking in the good news. If we remember that verse from Isaiah, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, bring good tidings, proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Evangelists embody beauty. They, they bring culture and they bring... Surprise, discovery. they have hopeful realism uh, kind of guiding their perspective of the world. And, and they have this power of persuasion that, that they, they're not just offering canned presentations, but they're bringing someone's life into God's life. So in, in the Gospels, we get this picture of Jesus the Evangelist in Matthew 20, or Matthew 4:23. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Or that mission statement in Luke 4, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim jubilee, the year of the Lord's good favor. So this John three conversation, uh, a friend of mine. I can't ever not think of this. A friend of mine calls it Nick at night. You know, uh, this this Nicodemus character, who's a, a well-respected Pharisee, comes to him under the, the the under darkness so that he won't be seen. And Jesus tells him, after blowing his mind open about being born again, Nicodemus says, do I need to crawl back into my mother's womb? And we've had a lot of these sorts of discussions in my house over the last couple weeks uh, with our kids. But then Jesus says, for God so loved the world, and this is the verse we know, right? For God so loved the world, and that's not, that's not, um, that's not necessarily a, a quantity, for God loved the world so much. It's God loved the world in this exact way. So God loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through them, through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son, the one sitting right in front of Nicodemus. And so when I thought about evangelists, I thought, no, that's not what I thought. Um, I thought about someone I met a few years back, this, this painter, Mako Fujimura, as an evangelist. And that might, that might even be surprising to Mako. But I think Mako's presence and his articulation of the good news in surprising ways to a surprising people, Mako's a a renowned Japanese-American artist in New York City who who does this very old craft that he's trained in, Japanese art form of Nihanga that uses pulverized precious metals and water um, to to spread it kind of in unpredictable ways on a canvas. So he makes these beautiful kind of illuminated uh, pieces of art. He uses this old abstract cultural craft to speak in new in surprising ways about emerging pains and losses and lacks in culture. He offers both the the comfort and the challenge of the gospel, of the good news of God's coming kingdom in Christ, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, new birth, no condemnation. Mako the Evangelist. And now Jesus the shepherd and, and they use shepherd because that's a nice, nice for the acronym. Uh, some translations say pastor, but it's so often lost on us that the word pastor is a pastoral word It's having to do with pastures and and flocks. You know, like if you've grown up in church, you you always hear like the pastor talking about my flock. You know, like that that that's kind of that's kind of what this is. A pastor is first and foremost a shepherd who's concerned with the care and the particularity of each and every sheep who remembers and will go after the lost. So Matthew 5 has Jesus and he says, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or in Acts 20, when Paul says, talks to the Ephesian church. This is maybe a few years down the road after this letter. And he instructs the elders, the, the leaders of that community, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And then, of course, the good shepherd uh, motif in John. John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And of course, we have the the famous story in the trio with the prodigal son, where there's a hundred sheep and one wanders off and that shepherd is insane enough to leave 99 to go after the one and then there's a celebration when he gets it back and finally uh, later in the gospels when when Jesus shows back up to, to Peter who would become the church's bishop, the pastor of pastors he, the resurrected Christ shows up to Peter who if we remember, denies him three times. They, they ask Peter, do you know him? He goes, ah, not my guy. Do you know him? I, I wasn't even there. Know him, not me. And then, and then Jesus shows back up to see Peter and mirrors his trio with three questions. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And his response is, if you love me, feed my sheep. Be a shepherd. Have that sort of care, for the people that I've put around you. And so my nomination, and this might be kind of a Homer nomination, I'm allowed to do this because she's not there. My nomination is my wife, Rachel the Shepherd, because she is a far better pastor than I will ever be. And I, I, don't, I don't say that just to, to cozy up. I say that because she has this follow-through and this concern and this care and this tenacity for people. In prayer and probing questions, she's transparent with them. One thing about a a, a shepherd is a shepherd's sheep know them and they know their sheep. There's this reciprocity. And she sneakily does all this under the auspices of being a friend. I don't think she knows how much of a pastor she is. But she's being a pastor. She's shepherding people. Not to mention she's shepherding our kids who who she's laying her life down for. um, And that's easy to see, but she's she's done this, and a lot of people in this building have have felt that uh, from her. So I I hope to continue to have our imaginations expanded for what it means to be a a pastor, a shepherd. And finally, a teacher. And and this is a pretty easy one for for Jesus. even, Even a lot of biblical scholars who don't think a whole lot of how Jesus is divine. We'll give him that he was a good teacher. Teachers not only open God's word, but they open minds and hearts. They embark on the long process of transformation through the renewal of our minds. And they know that that sort of transformation only comes by the Spirit, by Spirit-led repentance and dependence on God. Teachers call others to faith. And it's... It's a sort of faith-seeking understanding. Not that we can like stand outside and just learn. Like This isn't dry textbook teaching. This is learning from the inside. Learning the ways of Christ and His coming kingdom by doing. If you want to learn, if you want someone to teach you how to pray, you start praying or you listen to their prayers. And so I look, and, and what this artwork depicts is is Jesus, the teacher, at the Sermon on the Mount. Teaching and preaching a sermon of blessing and rigor and creativity. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart, for they will see God. The peacemakers, for they will be called God's children. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are people when they insult you, persecute you, falsely say all sorts of evil things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Prophets. And then a few chapters later, that's at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, a few chapters later at the end in Matthew 7, it says, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one with authority, not as their teachers of the law. A teacher teaches with creativity. That if Inside of that Sermon on the Mount, his creativity is evident when he, when he ratchets up kind of the demands of the law. He has this imagination that not only if you kill, but if, if you're angry in the wrong way, you've sinned. Uh, he also he, he also shows this creativity in, in, in being able to to kind of remix to not abolish the law but to fulfill the law. And that's part of his authority that he speaks with. And so for for me, my nomination for a teacher, and this is someone who we'll pray for in a minute, is a teacher I had in school, Richard Hayes. And we'll pray for him in a minute because he most recently, he's been our dean of the Divinity School, and he's, he's resigning because he's bat- he's, he announced that he's receiving treatment and battling pancreatic cancer. Um, but for me, he typifies uh, this office of, of teacher because, for one, his scholarship is like second to none. A lot of um, students in this church or anyone will have been affected in some way by his scholarship but also his personality and his winsomeness typifies that kind of, of Christ-like teaching. Um, and, and I think, I think that, that the, all of these um, apostle, prophet, evangelist, uh, shepherd, and teacher, they, they, they show us how these many gifts are expressions of the one. They need to find their, find their fullest expression in Christ. They're they're gifts given by Christ, but they lead us back to Christ. When they're working together, each worthy of their own calling, each in harmony with others and for the good of building up the church in unity, knowledge, and maturity. It actually achieves a kind of oneness, the fullness of Christ. I think this is an audacious thing to shoot for, the fullness of Christ who is the one who is in all and fills all. I think it's ambitious, I think it's outlandish, and I think it's utterly impossible apart from God's grace that we'd become this kind of mosaic, this kind of biodiversity, building together into a unified, mature, worthy body. I think this is challenging to us, too. And I'm challenged, um, I'm challenged by this concept, this idea of growing in likeness, And I'm challenged partly because of my name. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Uh, My name, Chris, my given name, Christopher, if you break it down, is is kind of two parts. Christ, Christ, and Ofer, which means bearer. In short, Christ-bearer. The whole goal and end of the Christian life is to, of course, bear Christ, and I got stuck with this name, right? To bear Christ in your mind, on your body, with your hands, in your relationships, with your words, in good times and in bad, to bear Christ. To become more and more like Christ, more and more conformed into his image by his grace. We graciously work inside of Christ's already completed work in order to make true what's already been made true. When God looks at me, he sees Christ. Hopefully tomorrow that'll be even more true, so I'm challenged by this name. But I'm also challenged by, the the funny thing is, if I'm supposed to be more like Christ, what is going to happen to Chris? Because I kind of like Chris too. The funny thing is, that God doesn't wipe all of me away in order to do this. He doesn't wipe all of you away to do this. Being baptized into Christ's death in his new life, it, it's not like like the witness protection program where they like wipe your identity clean and put you in a van and then like drop you in Kansas with a new social security card. Like that's not what happens. No. Christ's likeness recreates and transfigures for me my Chris. Likeness. As I become more like Christ, I become more truly me. The one who gets refracted into the many. That's how each of us can be called to Christ's likeness, and each of us can be so stinking different. It's frustrating and glorious. A bunch of little Christs that bear resemblance to Jesus. Each have little nuances, little graces that once might have been seen as deficits, but now they're they're assets, they're gifts. Gifts for the sake of others, for the sake of love. And with these gifts, Paul's letter says, we grow to become in every aspect, every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its, its work. Amen. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for this good news that you've not only included us into your family, this call that almost everyone in this room wouldn't have had Uh, if it were not for Christ. uh, We we wouldn't have even ever been on the inside, ethnically or or in any way, but you've called us in Christ. You've reformed your people, Jews and Gentiles alike, in Christ. And Lord, we, we thank you for that unity, that peace that you've made, and we thank you for the diversity that springs out of that. That each of our lives might be witness your grace, your love, your peace. That each of our gifts might be for the sake of others and might kind of dovetail with someone else's gift. So when you put us all together, the surrounding community looks at us and sees Christ's body with Him as our head. Lord, that's a mystery. That is crazy. But it's true because of your grace it's true because that's your plan on this earth to reclaim and to renew to seek repentance to renew all things in Christ's name Lord we thank you for this this is good news Lord give us wisdom um, and discernment and imaginations to look around us and and instead of seeing things that we're jealous of or, or angry at, to just look around and see gifts, grace surrounding us everywhere, in um, faces of, of people that are like us or not like us. Give us, give us your eyes. We thank you and, and we pray all this in in Jesus' name, who is in all and and holds all together. Amen.